I'm Peter Goh. I'm a member here at Kettlebrook. I serve on the finance committee as well as a couple other ministries here. Very honored to be with you all this morning. Welcome to all of you here. Welcome to those joining us online. I know I was speaking to Grace's grandfather who was a retired pastor. I told him I was preaching today. He's tuning in through the stream. He said he's expecting a lot of pounding on the podium, shouting. Um, so Grandpa Snyder, thanks for tuning in. We'll see, we'll see if we see that this morning. So it's great to gather here this morning on this Father Day, Father's Day, whether male or female, young or old, biological dad or not, isn't it great that we all can remember that we have a Heavenly Father who we can celebrate today for his grace to us in Jesus. One announcement before I begin regarding baptism. If you're going to go through baptism this year, I highly recommend you do so. I would say one caveat if you are, strongly suggest a water safety class. I don't know if anybody saw me get dunked under there, you got to be able to hold your breath long enough for the rebirth uh, to come back up. <laughs> so take note if you are getting baptized this year. Actually, speaking of baptism, um, I've been a Christ follower for 16 years, but was just baptized last year. I submitted my life to Jesus at a school chapel led by my pastor, and although I had put my faith in God at this point, I didn't obey his word in proclaiming that I had put my faith in God through the act of baptism. I'm the third of four kids, and all three of my siblings were baptized before me. I remember my brother getting baptized and him asking me, you know, why haven't you got baptized? I remember my parents giving me the opportunity to get baptized. And even my now wife, Grace, I remember her asking, hey, why haven't you been baptized yet? And I'd always have some reason as to why that was the case. You know, whether that was, hey, I didn't want to be just doing it because my brother was doing it. Or I didn't want to just be doing it because my parents brought it up as a good option to do. But really, it was my own pride and my own inability to give up control as to why I had yet to be baptized. Really, it wasn't too different from the road trip that we're going through this summer in the book of Numbers. God placed many opportunities for me to obey, and I continued to pass them down. God's presence or his manifestation was present amidst my mutiny. As you may remember in our summer road trip through Numbers, we're seeing God's manifestation in the midst of our mutiny. So when I was asked to preach on Numbers, I think Steve shared this a couple of weeks back as well, Numbers and I think a lot of other Old Testament books can sometimes be a little bit daunting or challenging to unpack. But I think as we go through the text today, and I certainly felt this way um, as I got more accustomed to the text, you'll see there's a lot going on in, in Numbers and especially here in today. So before we open up our Bibles, let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for gathering us all here together. I pray that you would use me to speak the words that you want to say. Remove me and my shortcomings. I pray that you would just help me to share what you want to be shared. Um, give everybody ears to listen this morning. Amen. So, if you could open up your Bibles, we'll be looking at Numbers chapter 10, starting at verse 11. Highly recommend opening up a Bible this morning. I'm a recovering Bible app user myself. Uh, nothing wrong with the Bible app, but I'd encourage you to open up a Bible. Feel free to grab a brown Bible in front of you. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to have you take this with you. We'll be on page 102 this morning. So as you're opening that up, you'll remember that Numbers is the fourth book of the Bible. We've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and then Numbers. The Israelites, God's people, were slaves in Egypt. God miraculously led them out of Egypt through the use of plagues on the Egyptians. He splits the Red Sea for them to escape, and they begin their trek toward Mount Sinai. 
We've been hearing about their time uh, to and at Mount Sinai, but today we are following them as they leave the desert of Sinai and travel to the desert of Paran. So we'll be starting here at chapter 10, verse 11. On the 20th day of the second month of the second year, the cloud, that is God's presence, lifted from above the tabernacle of the testimony. Then the Israelites set out from the desert of Sinai and traveled from place to place until the cloud came to rest in the desert of Paran. They set out this first time at the Lord's command through Moses. The next section is a long section, verses 14 to 28, describing the, in great detail the order of which the tribes were to travel on. So we'll pick up here in verse 29. Now Moses said to Hobab, son of Reuel, the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law, we are setting out for the place about which the Lord said, I will give it to you. Come with us and we will treat you well, for the Lord has promised good things to Israel. He answered, no, I will not go. I am going back to my own land and my own people. But Moses said, please do not leave us. You know where we should camp in the desert and you can be our eyes. If you come with us, we will share with you whatever good things the Lord gives us. So the Israelites, God's chosen people, who he, again, miraculously led out of Egypt, are continuing on their road trip, leaving Mount Sinai, traveling towards Paran. God, we see that God meticulously describes to Moses the order of which they are to leave, who was to lead each of the tribes. And then in verse 29, we read a rather nondescript, but I think intriguing conversation between Moses and his brother-in-law, Hobab. Hobab was not, a Midian, was not an Israelite, he was actually a Midianite, and he would have likely been well-versed in navigating the wilderness. Obviously a skill that would come in handy as they're going through their journey into the wilderness. Hobab initially declines Moses' plea to have them join on their journey. And Moses responds saying this, If you come with us, we will share with you whatever good things the Lord gives us. Now the text doesn't actually explicitly share Hobab's response to Moses. But if we fast forward to the book of Judges, we hear of Hobab's descendants in Israel. So it's likely to assume that he did join them on the journey. Hobab would have likely just seen or heard about the Israelites' God sending plagues to the powerful Egyptians, splitting the Red Sea to help them escape, and Moses promises to share the good things from the Lord with Hobab. I think we can take away a few things from Moses' request for Hobab to stay with them. One of these things was that Moses was likely evangelizing. Imagine traveling with millions of people through the wilderness following a cloud that is their God's manifestation. Or the fact that their God had just split the Red Sea so that they could escape. I think it's a safe assumption that Moses, and potentially others as well, evangelized to Hobab in his time with them. How about discipleship? I think this scenario is often what discipleship can look like. We invite people to live life with us so they can see God through us, how we live, and the blessings that he can bestow upon us. Personally, I've seen intentional discipleship this way whether playing volleyball, riding to sporting events, or even driving and taking your kids to school. I think we may often think of discipleship purely as two people sitting together, maybe in the word, praying, and I think that discipleship should and definitely can look like that. But discipleship can also look like the mundane parts of life um, and living out those everyday parts of life with clear intentionality. I get a chance to meet with Troy pretty regularly at his house in the morning. I get a chance to be with his family see Isaac and uh, my lad Ephraim in the mornings there. And one morning, Troy had a last second change of plans where he had to take the kids and the carpool of kids that they ride with to school. So I was there, I come along in the car with them, and 
just basically sit in the car with them as we pick up each of the kids. Not exactly a, a super exciting task, but essentially we're t picking up each kid, and I get a chance to see Troy be very intentional with, again, a very mundane task. He speaks to each of the kids as they get into the car, asks them how they're doing. Again, not a long conversation, but he's connecting with each of the kids. As we get closer to school, he asks each of the kids, hey, who is someone or something? What can we be praying for as we're driving to school today? So I heard some prayer requests for friends, for teachers, that they give strength to the teachers, which I think we all know teachers need. Uh, and we drive in. I got a chance to pray for them, and all the kids went into school. And in my experience, this can often be the most impactful, practical discipleship, where you get the chance to observe the other person and be discipled by the person just watching them live life. I know it's no longer 2021, but I can still encourage you and I to disciple one, even if it is 2022. So next slide here. Discipleship can take place anywhere if we are intentional. Again, that's just one example of taking your kids to school. I know lots of us uh, do that, but we all have mundane tasks where we could be intentional about how we're living life and looking to disciple others. We see Moses and likely others discipling Hobab by inviting him in to travel with them and stay with them. And we can actually zoom out even further and see God discipling the entire Israelite people on this road trip that we're going through. Now, I think there's actually still more that we can pull from this conversation between Moses and Hobab. You'll remember that I said Hobab was a Midianite. Because of this, he was likely well-versed in navigating the wilderness. You can picture Hobab similar to this. Yes, that is Bear Grylls. Some of you may know Bear. He was the youngest person from the UK to climb Mount Everest. He's known for his crazy stunts on his YouTube page. And he's the kind of guy... In the hypo hypothetical scenario we all get posed with being on the island, he's probably the guy you want there with you. If I was Troy right now, I'd probably nail Bear's British accent, but I'll, I'll let that be Troy's thing today. So when we think of Hobab, you could think Bear Grylls as someone you'd want to assist in navigating the wilderness. Moses and the Israelites are being led by God's presence. In this series, we're talking about God's manifestation, which is quite clear here. God's manifestation is... Um, in the cloud by day and a fire by night. Surely God's presence would provide the necessary guidance in the wilderness, certainly more than one man, Hobab, could provide. Presuming that Hobab, uh, excuse me, however this conversation results in God coupling his divine power with human skills and action from Hobab. Presuming that Hobab acted as their guide or advisor in the wilderness, this would have, of course, been combined with his presence, God's presence. On the surface, it may seem unnecessary to have Hobab in the picture or pointless for Moses to request his presence. However, I think if we look into the Bible, we actually see a lot of examples of God using human work with his divine power. Think back to maybe even some Sunday school stories. You'll remember Noah's in the ark where we've got Noah and his human skill in action building the ark with God's divine power. How about the battle of Jericho where we saw the Israelites told by God to march around the city for seven days um, to take over the city of Jericho. In Genesis, we hear about Joseph's enslavement and how it was attributed to two different things. It was attributed to both his brothers, and it was also attributed to God's divine design or God's divine plan. Those are a couple Old Testament examples. So what about in the New Testament? In the New Testament, in John 21, we hear Jesus instruct Peter and Andrew, who are fishermen, to cast their nets down into the sea one last time. They agree, and again, we see human action coupled with 
God's divine power. Author and professor Dr. Roy Gain sums it up well when he says this, when God is leading, prospering, protecting, and are giving victory, he can participate and bring about his purposes providentially through human activity. So I think another takeaway that we can have from this is that God often pairs human action with his divine power. So we move on here from Moses' conversation with Hobab in cha to chapter 11 where we see a lot of the action today. Let's pick up here in chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. Now the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord, and when he heard them, his anger was aroused. Then fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. When the people cried out to Moses, he prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So that place was called Taborah, because fire from the Lord had burned among them. Chapter 11 is the first significant complaint we hear from the Israelites in the book of Numbers, and it's a prime example of seeing God's manifestation in the midst of mutiny. They begin to complain about their misfortunes, and in doing so, God sends fire to the outskirts of the camp. The story is rather short. The Israelites complain, God becomes angry, and God sends fire to the camp. The text says it was to the outskirts of the camp, so it's likely that this didn't consume anyone, but was more sent as a wake-up call to the Israelites. We see the Israelites mutiny in their complaining, and we see God's manifestation in both his judgment and his mercy. I think it's evident that God is sending a warning shot to them to remind them of his power and his justice. However, after they see their almighty God send fire from the sky to the outskirts of the camp, what do we see the Israelites do next? Next verse shows that they proceed to complain again. I know, they're very quick learners. So we hear of a mob stirring in the camp complaining about having to eat manna instead of the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the garlic that they had back when they were slaves in Egypt. Parents, I'm sure you can probably relate. You've probably had your kids once or twice complain about being hungry, complain about foods. They probably weren't asking for onions, leeks, or garlic, maybe melons. Um, unless maybe Oliver Sizdek, he comes over to my house and asks for some vegetables. Um, so I don't know if they've got something figured out over there. So let's continue on here in verse 11. He, that is Moses, asked the Lord, Why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promise on oath to their forefathers? Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me, give us meat to eat. I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you are going to treat me, put me to death right now. If I have found favor in your eyes and do not let me face my own ruin, the Lord responds to Moses with instruction to gather 70 men of the elders of Israel to help offload the work and the burden of responsibility that Moses is feeling. He also responds to their request for meat, picking it up here at the end of verse 18. Now the Lord will give you meat and you will eat it. You will not eat it just for one day or two days or five, ten or twenty days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it. Because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wailed before him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? But Moses said, Here I am among 600,000 men on foot, and you say, I will give them meat to eat for a whole month? Would they have enough if flocks and herds were slaughtered for them? Would they have enough if all the fish in the sea were caught for them? The Lord answered Moses, Is the Lord's arm too short? 
you will now see whether or not what I say will come true for you. So Moses went out and told the people what the Lord had said. He brought together 70 of their elders and had them stand around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke with him, and he took of the spirit that was on him and put the spirit on the 70 elders. When the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not do so again. However, two, two men whose names were Eldad and Medad, which I've got to just pause here. Father's Day, we've got two names, Eldad and Medad. A little ironic. Anyways, verse 26. However, two men whose names were Eldad and Medad had remained in the camp. They were listed among the elders, but did not go out to the tent. Yet the Spirit also rested on them, and they prophesied in the camp. A young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Joshua, son of Nun, who had been Moses' aide since youth, spoke up and said, Moses, my Lord, stop them. But Moses replied, Are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Then Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. The chapter closes then with God's words to Moses coming to fruition. He sends quail to the camp piled a few feet high for miles. The people respond by collecting the quail. And however, we read that while the meat was still between their teeth, they were struck down by the Lord. Then we hear chapter close as they journey from there to Hazaroth. So, I told you there was a lot going on today. This time the Israelites complain about their food. They've been receiving food daily from God. It was their daily bread. God sent them manna in the morning of each day, and that manna would last for them for one day, essentially. Each day they'd go out, collect manna. That food would last them for their day. It was God's providence. You could think, when you think manna, you could think probably the opposite of these guys right here. These last, I think, a little bit more than a day. So the only exception to that was, was God would send manna down, and they would collect two days' worth before the Sabbath so that they wouldn't work on the Sabbath. But it was God's way to provide for them daily. I think we're probably quick to see the complaining unfolding and probably wonder what the Israelites were doing or why they would react the way that they did. So I've got a question for you. Does anybody know who this individual is? No, it's not Aaron Rodgers. No, any guess? No, wide receiver? There we go, Valdez Scantling. Marquez Valdez Scantling or MVS. Former Packers wide receiver. Another fun fact. I know Barry's got all the fun facts, but he was the fastest wide receiver in the NFL last year, so there's a fun fact for you. But I think when I look at the Israelites and how we can react, it reminds me a little bit of this. You can picture Aaron Rodgers. I would imagine some of you may watch Packer game here or there, so you could probably picture this. Aaron Rodgers, he takes a snap, backs up. He does this thing where he's kind of just running around, darting around defenders, and he does one of these, heaves somehow under he releases the ball under his hip. I don't know how he does it. Throws it like 40 yards with pinpoint accuracy right in MVS's lap, sitting for a wide-open touchdown. Probably guess what happens next. Hits off the hand, drops on the ground. If you're a Packer fan and you're watching that on TV, what's your typical reaction to that? Probably a groan. Maybe if, if, you're, if you're a respectful fan, maybe a groan. Maybe, I could have caught that pass. Or how could he have dropped that? Rodgers literally threw that right in his lap. I think, actually, while I, was, while I was preparing for this, I came across a YouTube video compiling every single drop pass that MVS had in the 2020 season. So, so it reminded me of watching the Israelites mutiny across their road trip. It's easy to sit back and say, well, I wouldn't do that. But really, I think this is exactly what we do. Think back to what you ate for breakfast today. Maybe it was a meal that you enjoy a lot. Maybe it wasn't. 
Regardless, I want you to imagine eating that meal every single day, three times a day, for an entire year. Even if it was a great meal that you enjoy, at some point you're probably going to get tired of eating that same meal. At some point, we're probably also eventually going to complain about the lack of diversity that we have in the food we're eating. I think it's easy for us to sit back, either on the couch watching the Packers on our favorite recliner, or sit back at church here and look at what the Israelites are doing, seeing what they did historically, and critique them. Critique the Packers for dropping the wide-open touchdown. Critique the Israelites for lacking finding their contentment in God. Beyond their food preferences, what they're saying without explicitly saying is God isn't good. God doesn't care about us. Or life was better before God was leading us. In reality, again, we are guilty of doing the same things all the time. So, as they continue to gripe, an angry crowd forms and they express their discontent with God's providence for them. God answers them saying, they will not just eat the meat once, but as we read, they will eat it for a whole month until they hate it or until it comes out of their nostrils. Not often you get to, I heard the laughs as we were going through, not often you get a laugh out of reading through numbers. So that's a pleasant picture here. Reminds me actually a bit of food aversions. As many of you know, my wife is pregnant, and back in the first trimester, she certainly had her fair share of food aversions. We wouldn't necessarily make dinner together too often, but when we would, we'd spend time making this great dinner from scratch. She would talk about, while we're making it, how excited she was to have it. We get it, we finish, put it on a plate. She looks at the two plates, maybe gets a whiff of it, and pushes that second plate towards me. She has no interest in it anymore. She goes back, eats some string cheese or something for dinner. I get two plates, so I guess I'm happy about it. But I think this is likely how the Israelites were to feel um, eating the quail. I think many of you, I certainly can't empathize with that, but I think many of you may remember back to your pregnancies and having some food aversions as well. This is, like I said, what comes to mind when I hear the description of how the Israelites were to feel eating the quail. God answers their request. He sends different food than the manna by, get, by sending quail for them to eat. Amidst their mutiny, God piles high quail for miles um, on the ground. Ryan did some math as far as just how much quail there was. And we read that each person had more than 15 of these baskets or barrels full of quail. So just a little imagery there. Think about just how much quail there was that God piled on. I almost, I don't necessarily know that uh, this was God's way of sense of humor, but asks for different food and God says, here, I'll dump a mile's worth of quail for the Israelites to gather into their baskets. So, again, we read, however, while the food was still between their teeth, those that lacked trust in God's providence were plagued by something in the meat. It's clear here that their cravings for meat isn't what this is ultimately about. It's not about Meat versus not meat, vegan or not vegan. Another way to put it is that ultimately, it's not about where's the beef. Some of you are probably looking at this wondering what, what exactly that is. That would have been me two weeks ago. Uh, Ryan introduced me to the great Wendy's commercials back from the 80s, uh, where they talk about where's the beef. So for those of you that are unfamiliar, 30 seconds on YouTube will get you filled in after, after church. But my point bringing this up is that, again, God didn't punish the Israelites because they preferred meat over manna, but that their cravings weren't for him. In Psalm 63, David is also in the wilderness. He's likely feeling many of the same feelings and cravings that the Israelites are feeling. And he says this, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. 
So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. First, I want to point out, as we're reading through this, I think we can obviously understand the connection between David being in the wilderness and the language he uses, his soul thirsting for God, that his flesh faints for him as in a dry and weary land where there's no water. I think if we really put ourselves in David's shoes, we think about being stranded in the wilderness. We're probably looking for water, shade, food, but we see David's reaction, yes, he did need those physical things, but he is also very quick to say that his soul thirsts for the Lord, that his flesh faints for him, and that his soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and that his mouth will praise him with joyful lips. Although none of us are stranded in the wilderness, like David or the Israelites, we all have cravings. Cravings or desire is something that God gave us so that we can desire him. Having a craving or desire isn't a bad thing or a good thing, but it's about what we are craving. The world has twisted God's intention behind desire. So I want to ask us all today, what are we craving? Are we craving money, recognition, belongings? Are we craving God or are we craving what the world has to offer? So like I said, I want to pose this with a question here. What are we craving the most? Now we talked about the Israelites craving, but sandwiched in the middle of the story, kind of glossed over, we hear Moses cry out to God. Moses is burdened by the people and has just about given up all hope. I think it's important to note that he isn't crying out in complaint like the Israelites have been, like we saw. Moses is crying out because of just the burden and the weight that he feels in being responsible and a leader for millions of people. He uses a maternal description to describe that he didn't birth these children, but yet he is tasked with the responsibility to care for them. And at times, I think they do feel a lot like children to him. He even gets to the point of asking God to kill me now. Clearly, Moses is in desperation. God responds to Moses and his plea with such grace and gentleness. He shows his grace and mercy to the leaders of his people. And actually, this isn't the only time that we see God do so in the Bible. In 1 Kings 19, we see Elijah on the run for his life, being chased by Jezebel. He lays down in the wilderness, exhausted, tired, hungry, thirsty, and he cries out to God, very similar to Moses, and says, Lord, take me now. The Lord responds, sending an angel, and he provides food and provides water for Elijah, provides that physical support for him. Similarly, we see Moses cry out to God, and God responds with a, a plan to redistribute some of the workload to 70 newly appointed elders from the Israelites. I want to bring attention to how God responds to Moses and Elijah during their time of weakness. Both of them are feeling tired, distraught, and helpless. God could have given them an inspirational speech to, to tough it out, to keep going, to fight through, but he doesn't do that. Instead, he chooses to react with perfect gentleness, grace, and mercy. He recognizes that his leaders need additional support sometimes. Sometimes this can be physical support, like we saw from Elijah, and sometimes this can be support from other people, like we saw this morning today in our text with Moses and the 70 elders and Eldad and Medad. What about our leaders? We know that our leaders have a very difficult job that can leave them tired, distraught, and at times perhaps even feeling helpless. 
What are some practical ways that we can serve our servant leaders here at Kettlebrook and beyond? I think God used the timing of today's text and the platform I have today to share with you as a member of the body to, again, someone who isn't a pastor or a staff member to share and to speak to all of you and me to ask us what are some ways we can energize our leaders. So in preparation for today, I actually asked our leaders what are some ways, some practical ways that we can be supporting them. I've added a few of my own as well. So let's take a look here. First way that we can practically serve our church leaders is through prayer. This is something that was the most common answer, and I think also the most important. We can be praying for our leaders that God would give them wisdom to guide us further, that, they would, that God would give them strength, both physically um, and otherwise. And that's something that doesn't take any special talents or skill, just takes time and attention to be praying for our leaders, so we should be doing that as we continue to serve our church leaders. Encouragement. This is probably the easiest one. If you've got something encouraging to say, say it. Whether it's a quick email to a, a pastor or a staff member, or you run into them on a Sunday morning, we all know how encouraging it is to hear an encouraging note from somebody. So if you have something encouraging, share that. Serve them and their families. Our, our leaders and their families, they give up a lot to be servant leaders here at Kettlebrook. We should be looking out, seeking opportunities to serve not only our leaders, again, that can look like a lot of things, but also their families. Discipling others. Maybe this comes as a surprise to some of you to see this on here on ways that we can serve them. Maybe it doesn't at all. But if we're discipling others and continuing to build the body of Kettlebrook, it helps offload some of the work that our leaders take on normally. Join small groups, triads, and or huddles. I've been a part of a small group for over a year and a half, and I can speak very highly of the community and the, the growth in myself and others um, through the use of community, through small groups, triads, or huddles. If you're somebody who comes to church maybe regularly, but hasn't really taken that step into getting in, into um, additional ways where you can be involved at Kettlebrook, I highly recommend joining a small group, triad, or a huddle. You will not regret it. If you are interested in that, just fill out a connect card or speak with one of our pastors. And then finally, serve in the church. There really are countless opportunities to serve in the church. And sometimes people will say, well, I know I should serve in the church, but I don't know where, where should I serve? What, what, where are my skills aligned? And maybe that's probably the first way to look is where do your skills line up with ways you can serve? And if you feel like, well, I don't, I don't really know where my skills line up, that's fine. I think another way to look at it is what are the ministries that you've used? Well, maybe that's kids ministry, torch, ignite, middle school, high school ministry, hospitality, and just start there. But I think that we all know that serving in the church continues to help offload the work and the burden that's on our leaders here. So maybe this whole list sounds a little bit disheartening, that we're doing a bad job of supporting our leaders. If you're feeling that way, I want to share one response I got back from one of our leaders when I reached out to them. This person, they said this, I've always felt ridiculously supported by Kettlebrook and feel that it is a great privilege to actually spend my life doing what I love. And I'll also share this wasn't the only message like this. So I will say, encourage you and say, we can continue to keep serving our leaders. So again, I think that God gave me this platform today to share this as a member of the body who should be serving with all of us to continue to serve our leaders and support and care for our leaders. So just to recap where we've been today. Next slide, please. Discipleship can take place anywhere if we are intentional. God often pairs human action with his divine power. And then I want to pose two questions. 
what are we craving the most, and how can we better take care of our leaders? Before we close, we need to bring back this chapter, bring back to where this chapter is ultimately headed. Let's finish by looking at verse 29 once more. Verse 29 says, But Moses replied, Are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. We know that God sent his son, Jesus, so that this might come true. In Acts 2-4 we read, All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Then in, 19, in Acts 19.6 we read, When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. We see God's Spirit lead the Israelites through the cloud. I think it's often our reaction to wonder why we don't see this today, that cloud of God's Spirit, but I think we see a version of that. God's manifestation is not a cloud that we see, but his Spirit within those that believe in him. All of us are far more flawed, broken, and messed up than we ever dared imagine. And yet at the very same time, we are all more loved and accepted by the Father because of Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Let me say that one more time. All of us are far more flawed, broken, and messed up than we ever dared imagine. And yet at the very same time, we are all more loved and accepted by the Father because of Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. He guides us all the time and is how we continue to see God's manifestation in the midst of our mutiny. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for sending your son down to save us. Um, I thank you for everything that you've blessed us with. I pray that you would continue to encourage myself and all of us to continue to support and care for our leaders. I pray that you would give us the cravings and the desires for you and not for worldly things. God, we lift your name up high and we thank you for this morning that you've given us and the opportunity to gather here together. Amen. So, two turn and talk questions for you this morning. First, is there a time or area in your life where you could be discipling others that you hadn't previously considered? Second, what is one way that you can care for our leaders here at Kettlebrook? And secondly, will you commit to doing this?